0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Karen Koch. Even before the release of the photos of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in blackface, racism was already powerfully present in the current federal election campaign. And to many people, though the photos may have been an unexpected development, this larger reality has come as no surprise. Things have, after all, been getting just generally worse in recent years, globally and in Canada. That's true on a lot of axes, think growing precarity and economic inequality plus the climate crisis, but that prominently includes a resurgence of overt racism. Hate crimes are on the rise, there's a proliferation and growing normalization of street-level far-right white supremacist groups. Hostility towards and scapegoating of migrants is becoming ever more present in mainstream political discourse. We've seen things like the use of the notwithstanding clause to pass the racist Bill 21 in Quebec. And of course this federal election includes a far-right party with an overtly anti-immigrant platform being treated by mainstream institutions as a legitimate contender through things like its inclusion in national leaders' debates. And all of that is in the context of the settler colonialism, white supremacy, and anti-blackness that have always been structurally part of the Canadian state and society. Theft of land, labor, and lives, and racialized exclusion and exploitation are how this country was built. So no, lots of people are not surprised to see racism as a prominent feature in this election. And a year ago, a number of groups and organizations from across Canada that are comprised of or organized with migrant workers, refugees, and immigrants came together to do something about it. They were all well aware that in many parts of the world, right-wing parties are coming to power by strategically inflaming racism and anti-immigrant sentiments. They wanted to challenge both the racism and xenophobia in their own right, and the ways that they're used to divide communities, organizations, and movements. To that end, the Migrant Rights Network was founded in December 2018. The group's strategy before the election was twofold. One element was to take up public space, to make it broadly visible that there are groups and communities and individuals across the country who are willing to challenge the growing racism and xenophobia. To do that, they planned a number of days of action. On the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in March, on May Day, on Domestic Workers' Day, which also falls on Father's Day in June, and on Labor Day at the beginning of September. On these days, member groups of the network and people who responded to their call-out engaged in a mixture of organizing their own public events with having an organized and visibly anti-racist presence at larger events. Their other pre-election strategy was popular education. Over four months, they used a series of in-person events and webinars to train more than 500 people. Each of those people were then equipped to go back to their own communities, workplaces, unions, and grassroots groups, and lead their own workshops to give people tools to challenge xenophobia and racism. In so doing, their goal was to create a base of people with the confidence and the skills to intervene in anti-racist ways in these difficult conversations over dinner tables, around water coolers, at public events, and so on. The network launched their election period campaign as part of their day of action on Labor Day. They've been calling on people to sign an online pledge to speak up against racism and xenophobia over the course of the election. Everyone who signs up will be sent regular emails that they're calling election reality checks, which contain facts, ideas, and talking points related to the latest manifestations of racism in the election campaign. Karen Koch has a long history of doing grassroots community organizing and policy work connected to both immigration and workers, and she's been doing popular education and communications with the Migrant Rights Network. I speak with her about racism and xenophobia in Canada, both in general and in the context of the federal election, and about what the Migrant Rights Network is doing to counter them.
1: My name is Karen Koch. I currently live in Ottawa on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. I work with the Migrant Rights Network, helping with the popular education and communication strategies. My family came to Canada just before I was born. I'm the only one in my family that was born here in Canada. My family came from Chile as a result of the political coup that was sponsored by the U.S. and other imperial forces in the early 70s. And that experience of immigration really shaped our family and us as individuals and shaped my experience. So while I didn't have to experience the uprooting that my siblings and that my parents had to experience The experience of migrating and of trying to build a new home and find a place here in this country, I think very deeply impacted me as a child growing up and that feeling of otherness that always followed me around. And I've done a lot of grassroots organizing and community organizing that has led me to the work that I do now. So I do a lot of work supporting a lot of organizing amongst precariously employed workers, and a lot of work around the intersections of immigration and labor and immigration and work. And so the natural confluence of those two things has now come out in the work with the Migrant Rights Network, which is really trying to connect the issues and the analysis around questions of immigration and migrant labor with questions of racism, with questions of decent work, and with questions of the kinds of society that we want to build here. The network was founded in December of 2018, and it was a coming together of a number of groups and organizations, community groups that work with migrants, with migrant workers, groups of migrant workers themselves, with self-organized migrants and refugees, and folks who work in labor or with workers. We came together because we were feeling an increasing concern about the state of anti-immigrant sentiment in this country. So over the last number of years, we've seen a real increase of hate crime in the number of reported and documented white nationalists and supremacist groups. And what we've seen in our own work in migrant worker communities and with workers is an increase in a sense of precariousness felt across the board and an increase in the use of immigration and migration as a scapegoat and as a distraction from those issues, and that that was becoming a lot more normalized. And we were fearful that in the context of the federal election, in the lead up to the federal election back then, we were still almost a year away, that that would only get worse. We were identifying those trends around the world, that in various places in Europe and South America, right-wing governments were coming to power, often using racism and anti-immigrant sentiment as a strategy to divide and to distract From the real economic anxieties and the crisis of economic inequality that societies all over the world are experiencing and using that as a strategy to come to power and that once in power, as we've seen, these governments continue to further austerity agendas and anti-worker agendas that do a lot of damage. So we were fearful that the same thing was going to be playing out here and that we were already seeing it starting to happen. And we wanted to come together to strategize about what to do, how to proactively take steps to push back against those kinds of strategies taking real root here in Canada in the lead up to the federal election. The two main pillars of the strategy that we identified in terms of the areas of need coming out of the work and the conversations we had been having in our community was that on the one hand, we needed A way of being able to make very public and to take up public space. The fact that there are actually communities and groups of people all across the country who are identifying this racist, anti-immigrant sentiment for what it is and see it and will call it out and won't stand for it. And who will stand instead for an anti-racist universal vision of a decent society for all of us. In a way to kind of take up public space in the same way that we have been seeing some of the more alt-right white nationalist, white supremacist groups taking up space, feeling more bold and more confident to take up public space. We wanted to be able to do the same, to show that there was actually a movement that was anti-racist in favor of decency and fairness for migrants and for all of us. So that strategy was the series of days of action that we have been having. For each day of action, we've had regularly over a dozen actions taking place from coast to coast. And a lot of it has really involved encouraging people to be really visible. Everything from rallies, visits to MPs, community picnics, forums, you know, community art projects, marches workplace actions, all sorts of different things that people have been doing from across the country. So the first one was March 21st, the International Day to End Racism. The second one was May 1st, International Workers' Day. The third one was June 16th, which is International Domestic Workers' Day as well as Father's Day. And then the final one was September 2nd, the Labor Day. The reason why we chose those days is because they are days that felt significant for the communities that we are working in, for migrant workers and for migrants who are involved in this organizing. And the last day of action for September 2nd, Labor Day, was important for us because the analysis that the network is trying to push is an anti-racist analysis that also talks about work and that talks about workers and talks about the economic system and how it's organized and that that is an essential axis on which race and racism play out. So Labor Day was a really important day for us to mobilize within organized labor and within the union movement to say that as workers, we won't be divided by racism and xenophobia. And to sort of mark what is basically the de facto start of the election period with this sort of united chill force to say we will unite against racism and we won't let politicians divide us. And then the other strategy was the popular education that we've been doing. And we launched that in April and we spent about four months doing train-the-trainer strategy. So we've had in-person workshops and webinars across the country, We've trained up probably close to 500 facilitators who are people that we were training from various communities and various sectors, whether in labor or outside, folks who are migrant workers, people who are working with migrant workers from social services and education, healthcare, like across the board, who were basically signing up to say, we want to be trained on the tools and the analysis and the language that we can use to challenge racism and xenophobia in our own workplaces or in our communities. The reason for the popular education strategy was that we felt that our communities were lacking the tools and the analysis and the arguments to be able to challenge the racism and the xenophobia they were hearing, and that without being able to do that, that this racist xenophobia was starting to become sort of normal and that people were hearing their family members or their friends or their coworkers expressing anti-immigrant sentiment in response to the things they were hearing in the media and from politicians, kind of echoing those ideas and not knowing how to challenge it and not knowing how to say, look, you know, if you're worried about your kid's future, is immigration really the problem? Or is it, you know, the underfunding of our public services or our public education? Or is it what governments aren't doing to ensure that we get paid decent wages or things like that? So these facilitators that we've been training have then been able to go back to their own communities and workplaces and run trainings, run workshops, screen videos to train other folks in their communities with whom they have relationships, of trust, to be able to similarly challenge these kinds of ideas. And in that way, we were hoping to build a base of folks who would feel confident to be able to engage in these conversations and shift the broader public conversation away from racism and xenophobia. And then now that we are in the election period, we are using that base of folks that we've trained up as well as others who signed our pledge on September 2nd to unite against racism and to challenge racism and xenophobia. We are sharing regular election reality checks, we're calling them that provides the latest analysis of the most recent racist or anti-immigrant thing that has been said on the campaign trail, and providing people with talking points and facts and information and shareables and infographics and all of that to be able to counter those messages so that they don't take root in this urgent election period.
0: So it sounds like an important part of the context for the network coming together was those various changes for the worse that you mentioned in Canadian society and globally. But put those changes in the longer-term context, and draw out the ways in which there is something new about the current moment, but also how it's very much connected to long, deep histories of racism and xenophobia in this country.
1: I think really that's what informed the creation of the network and the kinds of ideas and information we wanted to put out there was to sort of say we're in this moment where people are talking a lot about alt-right organizing and are talking a lot about, you know, white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazi groups. And there's been a real increase in those groups recently in Canada and around the world. And we can talk about that in a way that exceptionalizes it. And really, those are just extreme and recent manifestations of, like you said, systemic problems and processes that have been going on for a long time, right? So that we've been wanting to draw those connections. And we can point to the seasonal agricultural workers program, for example, that is over 50 years old. And that was designed precisely to ensure that there was an ample pool of labor that Canadian employers would have access to, who in turn would not have access to some of the basic rights and basic services that other residents in this country have. And it's designed to be that way, right? The system is designed to force people to make a difficult decision to have to cross on foot in dangerous conditions. You know, we've heard about people crossing from the U.S. in the winter across the border through Manitoba who were losing fingers and things. And But these are not exceptional situations. These are decisions. These are realities that are produced by design. By policymaking now and that build on a long history of exclusion and racism. So, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act in Canada was one of the first examples of how immigration policy was in fact designed precisely to be exclusionary, to be racist, to exclude or to strip of basic rights and decency and humanity certain kinds of people and yet extract labor from them to grow the settler colony here in Canada. That dates way back to the very beginning of things and the very beginning of the immigration system. We're trying to show, by drawing on some of those historical examples, to say that racism, the theft of indigenous lands, exclusion... Exploitation through extraction of resources or land or labor are fundamental in the bedrock of the building of the country. That's how this country was built. And so the current manifestations that we see today, all those things really are the products of these long histories of how exclusion and division and inequality was really fundamentally built into the building of the Canadian nation state. And so in that way, we are trying to give folks tools so that when someone hears about something that's happening right now, to get people like sort of longer axes to be able to cut through that noise, to be able to say, you know, is this really a problem that we're just dealing with right now? Or is this a problem that we're dealing with because it was intended to be this way? The system was designed to produce these kinds of inequalities and to produce this kind of suffering. And how do we point to those who are really responsible? So when people are concerned about, you know, we've been hearing, for example, lately, these rumors that... Like, Like the shelters in Toronto, for example, are all full because refugees are using up all the beds, right? And so we can point factually to how that's actually incorrect. That's not true. That's not happening. But we can also give people the tools to be able to say, so what we're talking about here is we feel pressure on services, basic things that we feel like are important for leading healthy and dignified lives. We feel like they are under attack. We feel like there is not enough to go around. We are told there's not enough to go around. And so we are turning on each other and fighting amongst ourselves for scrap. But what is the reason why the shelter system is really scratched? It's because it's been underfunded. What is the reason that there are so many people who are in need of emergency shelters? It's because we don't have a reasonable strategy for affordable housing, either in Ontario or in Canada. So to be able to give people tools, to be able to look at the bigger picture and be able to punch up and say, well, what's actually really responsible for the crises and the problems and the inequalities that we're dealing with? Who's really responsible and what are structural and systemic solutions to be able to fix those problems.
0: What's it been like to do this work on a national scale? And I mean that both in terms of the basic logistics of organizing across a country this big and in terms of being responsive to the vast differences in local political context.
1: We are blessed that being a network, a sort of loose network of a number of different organizations and groups that came together from across the country and that are connected to very different networks. We have a very wide reach just through the relationships that exist through the network. So, you know, we have a wide reach in migrant worker organizing across a number of different communities where migrant worker organizing looks very different depending on the industries and the local context. We have allies and people in the trade union movement that are actively involved in the network and disseminating this work and building relationships within the union movement around this work. Folks who are working across a number of different sectors with workers in you know various professions or sectors like healthcare. We are lucky in the sense that we have all of these many networks to tap into and people have stepped up to organize trainings at their union locals or at their local provincial federations of labor or in their communities with their community groups from all over the place. And so we've managed to get a very interesting and diverse range of folks who have been involved in the campaign's work. We've done a number of webinars as well, which helps us reach a lot of people where we can't physically set up trainings in person. We can get people to hop on these webinars The more strategic question around how to make the work relevant and adapted to the local context is, in a way, what informed the whole rationale behind the the train-the-trainer strategy. So, you know, I live in Ottawa. I grew up in Ontario. I don't really have anything to say to farming communities in Saskatchewan, for example, about the specific ways in which migrant worker issues and immigration questions play out in their communities, in farming communities, in rural areas. But people who are farmers, who do live in those communities, who are grappling with these issues, who have been part of our training, absolutely can turn around and adapt that conversation and that work to the local context and know what are the issues that are going to be particularly salient for their friends and family or for the members of their National Farmers Union local, let's say and know how the conversations around racism and xenophobia and migrant work look specifically in their local context. What are the issues that are worrying people? What are the arguments and the politics that have the most sway with people? You know, what's going to work, what's not going to work? And so in a way, this whole strategy was informed by that understanding that the people best placed to be having what are hard conversations around racism and around xenophobia are the ones who have relationships with the people they're talking to, right, who have that trust who have a history where you can sort of say, look, we have a shared interest in, you know, in this particular community where the mine has shut down and now it's just temp agency work. We have a shared interest in understanding what's going on locally and how racism is playing into it and how xenophobia is playing into it. We are all in this together. And so let's figure out a way to not fall prey to those kinds of strategies and to organize around demands that actually win better working conditions and decent living conditions for all of us. So that's what has allowed people to take what they can from our training and what makes sense and translate it into the local context in a way that will engage people and really reach people where they're at.
0: Connect what you've been hearing in these conversations you've been having across the country to that work of providing people with tools to counter the idea that migrants and racialized people are a problem and direct attention to the role of elites and capitalists and oppressive systems.
1: What seems to be coming out from all of the conversations and all of the actions and all of the work across the board has been that there is definitely a generalized feeling of anxiety that people are living right now. Economic anxiety, climate anxiety that is making people feel not secure. They feel anxious about being able to retire or they feel anxious about paying the bills or they feel anxious about their kids getting ahead or they feel anxious about the world their kids are going to inherit. And the other thing I think that has come out is this sort of feeling of scarcity that people have, The many different ways in which migration and migrant work is being connected to the jobs question that looks different in different communities, but it always comes back to, you know, we don't have enough good jobs in our community and there are migrant workers working in the fish plant or something as an example. Or, you know, we have a housing crisis and yet we have all of these refugees who are getting all of these public subsidies from the government. It really echoes the things that we've been hearing from politicians over the last little while talking about how there's a crisis in the immigration system or the refugees are to blame for, you know, the fact that there isn't enough housing or these sorts of things. Another one that we've been hearing a lot is people who actually think and have been hearing what they read in the news leads them to believe that the temporary foreign worker program is very exploitative and that therefore we should be shutting it down. So those kinds of things are things that we're trying to engage with in terms of like being able to recognize that the anxieties that people are feeling are very real and we are all feeling them. So to be able to listen to that and then to be able to figure out what is really the issue that's going on here? What's the real anxiety? Is it really that somebody thinks that the problem is immigrants or is it that people feel anxious that there's just not enough to go around? How do we talk about that in a way that gives people the tools to be able to say, oh, yeah, actually, we have a whole bunch of people that we can hold responsible who are actually responsible for these problems. And we have the ability to be able to hold them to account for the decisions that they've made or for the money that they've made by putting us in the situations that are making us lose sleep at night. Those are some of the common things, and they really reflect the kinds of stuff that we're hearing from politicians, which is why for us it was so important to engage with the federal election. And that's the reason why the election reality checks are so important right now, because we want to be able to address those issues as they come up immediately so that we can continue to help direct people's frustration to the right places. We're looking for system change to deal with the fact that racism actually is deeply embedded in the way our society is organized. So to try and provide that analysis in a very quick way to people so that we don't get distracted by the conversation that politicians are having in the media and we can continue to press them on the real questions and the real issues.
0: What would you say to challenge folks grounded in other movements in terms of talking differently, acting differently when it comes to issues of racism and xenophobia?
1: We've seen a lot of interest from allied movements You know, in climate justice organizing, in the labor movement and others, folks who have come to us saying, we are allies in this work and we are obviously on board, but we don't actually think that we're doing enough to really be able to challenge racism within our own spaces, to be able to advance our movement in sync with and in step with anti-racist demands, fundamentally incorporating anti-racist demands rather than undermining them being able to arm our activists and our organizers with the language and the analysis to be able to bring that educational work in their communities or at the doorstep or with their membership to be able to bring us all a little bit further along. There's been a lot of interest in doing that because I think that what people are seeing is that things have gotten so bad and I think people feel like the crisis of inequality and the climate crisis is so acute right now. Seeing how If we don't organize our movements and our demands with a broad vision for anti-racism that is founded on migrant justice and on indigenous sovereignty and gender justice, then we're actually limiting our capacity in our separate various movements to be able to actually achieve our goals. So I think people are realizing because of the context and how bad it's gotten that we are being divided around these questions and that it limits our ability to win and to be successful no matter what the issue is. That to me is very encouraging because I think that it means that there's a lot of potential to move the sort of collective conversation in a number of different movements forward and together and I think that in that way, the moment and the strategy that we're using is really effective to say, look, whatever it is that you're working on, or whatever it is, issue that you care about, if we let this go on, if we let this kind of right wing ideology take hold that uses racism as a strategy to divide us, we will all lose. So that we just kind of recognize that we have collective skin in the game. So it's not just anti-racism because that's the nice way to be, but anti-racism because strategically, if we don't fight racism and xenophobia, we will all lose in our various struggles and demands for change. We are stronger strategically if we unite around anti-racist migrant justice focused demands that really center indigenous sovereignty that's an actual tool in our arsenal and it makes us strategically stronger and more capable of being able to win, whether it's around, you know, childcare or pipelines. So there's a lot of potential there. And I think that more and more folks are realizing that and I'm finding a lot of hope in that. The only other thing I would say maybe is to just direct everybody to go to migrantrights.ca where people can sign our pledge and then get our election reality check updates. The more we have People having these conversations in their workplaces and in their communities, the more impact it's going to have in really changing the public conversation in this election period. And so we need people as much as possible to go sign themselves up, to tell all their friends and family members and co-workers to sign up, to take the pledge, so that we can be delivering the tools that people need to be able to be doing this work wherever they're located.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Karen Koch of the Migrant Rights Network. To learn more about their work, and to sign up to receive their election reality check emails, go to migrantrights.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.